I think a lot of people don't get their financial house in order so that they can be in a position of strength to then go out and, and bring your game to the next level. And really, it is the pre-work or the preparation that ends up determining the separation. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com. And in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the Best Ever Conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Andrew Kuhn, how you doing? I'm doing great, Joe. Yourself? I am doing great as well and looking forward to our conversation a little bit about Andrew. He's the founder and CEO of Kuhn Investment Group, Kuhn Property Management and Infill Development, principal in over 400 units and has invested in another 1,000 units passively based in Detroit, Michigan. With that being said, Andrew, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. So thanks for having me on today, Joe. As a fellow Ohioan, I was originally born in a small town called Bucyrus, Ohio. Did my undergraduate studies at the University of Finley and was actually a pre-med major. Thought I was going to be a medical doctor. I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And long story short, about 19, 20 years old, a friend of mine from Rutgers mailed me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, said, read this book and tell me what you think. And that was the switch I needed to pivot directions in my life. So much to the dismay of my parents, I didn't apply for the MCATs. Rather, I decided to graduate and move up to the state of Michigan because that was the only place at the time where you could buy cheap housing as a kid in his early 20s to buy and sell real estate. And so it was really an interesting situation. And I blame everything that started with that book. So. <laughs> All right. So you moved up to Michigan. Yep. You moved to Detroit. I did. So I live in the inner ring suburbs, Royal Oak. I'm about three miles outside of the city of Detroit proper. It's a nice area. Uh, it's a nice area. And actually, that was the biggest thing that shocked me about Michigan is I moved up here. And again, don't get me wrong. I love Ohio, but the amount of water year round up north with Traverse and Petoskey and all these beautiful destinations, wine country, the west side of the state, natural beaches, it really blew me away with just everything it offers on top of the city of Metro Detroit, which has this cool energy. It's got this grit to it in regards to everybody's hustling. There's still opportunity. And it's really a city that at one time was one of the largest in the United States during the manufacturing era and then kind of fell through decades and decades of despair and just poverty, really. And so now it's kind of nice to see it coming back again. What year was this when you moved to Michigan? 2006. 2006. How much money did you have in the bank account? <laughs> I think I owed about 30000 in student loans. I had another 15000 in credit card debt and maybe a couple thousand dollars in savings from growing up. It was one of those things where 
you got to get out there and just start taking your first steps out there. And so I started in the single family housing market. As I mentioned in my bio to you, one of the things I did was I started just flipping houses and I realized that the strategy of buy, sell, make some money, it wasn't a very good strategy to get ahead because you would spend the money that you earned to live and to survive and to keep going. So I realized that I needed to do what uh, Michael Masterson calls the chicken entrepreneur. So I went back into the medical device space and for a long time, about 13 years, I was a medical device professional, basically supervising surgeries during the day. So I'd be in the operating room in the hospitals, watching surgeries, make sure implants were put in correctly. And then at night and weekends, I started buying houses. And the funny thing is I owned my first rental before I owned my first house. I was laughing the other day telling this story to a friend because when I started out, I literally was renting an apartment, yet I was buying rentals. And so it's just, yeah, yep. <laughs> I owned four rental okay. houses before, so I'm yep. with you on that. So you made your money as a medical device professional, and then you invested that money into single family homes, and then you started scaling your portfolio. Yeah. And I also, to add to that, I had a partner in the single family space and he owned his own property management company. And that's actually, I originally hired him because I got about two dozen houses and I was like, I can't manage these anymore. They're starting to take up too much time. So I hired him, then we became partners. And since then we've done probably close to 150 deals. We still own a hundred houses together. And basically we buy and rent, we build to rent, we've done some modular construction for rent. We've done some buy-sell transactions, but as you know, you live off of cash flow, right? And so my whole goal has always been to work once and get paid multiple times if passive income streams are relatively passive, all things considered. Mm -hmm. What a great philosophy, work once and get paid multiple times from that. Yep, exactly. Modular construction to then rent. Educate us on why do that compared to building to rent? Great question. The actual modular industry is still a fairly new industry. And in modular construction, basically it's the same construction methods of building either an apartment or a house. But instead of actually doing all the stick framing on site, you actually are doing it in a controlled environment, but just basically warehouse, industrial warehouses. And then there's ship to put on a semi bed and ship to a site. You still have to get your architectural plans approved by the state. You still have to follow every building code. You still have to get all your permits and everything signed off on. But the thing is, is that you get a prefix price. You can control your pricing and the delivery time. So to give you an idea, I live in an urban area, right? And the development company is infill because Basically, a lot of what we do is finding vacant lots or blighted properties, and I would buy them cheap so that my land costs were low, and then I would constrict the construction time so that I could have modular to get a faster product from the time I order a house to the time we have it set, have everything tied in, and then get it rented out. And so I found that I shaved six to eight months off wow. the average time frame of doing it the other way. My goodness. And you have a price that's much more reliable. Exactly. Especially with costs are through the roof right now. I'm doing about a $10 million renovation on 125-ish units in the city of Detroit proper in a historic neighborhood. And I'll give you a perfect example. This is a story I give everybody is that we had a $300,000 window budget 
And after six months of historic commission meetings, our Windows budget ended up at $925,000. So, wow. <laughs> so those types of things, those types of lessons really make an impact on you and you learn from them to really try and mitigate risk, which I think is an underutilized for investing in real estate as an asset class. So what were the changes that were made to go from three to 925? Basically, if any of your listeners, the best ever listeners ever decide to do historic designated communities, and basically they can be designated historic by the state or the United States nationally. And basically, sometimes it'll be individual houses. Sometimes in our case, it, it was a full neighborhood of multifamily apartment complexes. And basically what happens is, is whenever the date is that it was designated from that point forward, any single thing you do to the exterior of the building, renovation-wise, everything, has to be in the original format as much as possible. So what that means is we had just budgeted regular standard vinyl windows. We're going to do dark brown or black because it's a red brick building to make it look good. And they didn't like our sightline profiles of our sill dividers and stuff. They said it doesn't really represent the earlier model. We've tried to do Juliet balconies and make exterior modifications to open up the apartments because a lot of the, the inventory that I own is sub 500 feet. Probably at least half of the apartments are very small spaces, urban walkable downtown cores, kind of that affordable, cool aspect. Going back to the modular yep. construction, why would you do it any other way besides modular if it's cheaper and more reliable from a timing standpoint? Great question. So in regards to modular, there are pluses, but there are also minuses to it. And first off, real estate development as a whole is a very costly business. So is the multifamily investment company. So you're spending large amounts of money. Now, the reality is, is when you do a modular construction, you actually pay for the house up front. So you put a deposit down when you order, and then the balance is due when they deliver it on site. So on a single family house world, you're writing a hundred, $150,000 check by the time it's delivered. And then you still have another month of what they do, tie-ins and approvals and all the other fun stuff to actually basically have it on site. Okay. So it's just cash heavy up front. It is. And then really what you have to do is you have to be very liquid to be able to, to be able to have cash flow management. And then on the back end, you can put long-term debt financing on it, but just know that you don't get that going in. Any feedback aesthetically from prospective buyers or renters about modular versus regular custom built? So here's the beautiful thing about modular. Just like anything in life, there are very cheap and expensive builders. Then there are super high-end custom modular construction companies. So when you go with like a mid-grade level product, it looks literally no different from an actual stick-built, frame-built house that's built on a lot on site, basically. And so that's the nice thing. There are some limitations because whatever they build has to be able to be shipped down a highway. So you have nine foot width variance of each block, and it's kind of like building building blocks together and tying them together. And by the way, so just so you know, down the street from me right now, there's a 382 unit development that's all modular construction, super high end, class A, beautiful product, all kinds of amenities. And it's kind of cool to watch it because literally they just bring in semi after semi after semi of what looks like pallets. And then the next day, literally they have full stories added to the construction of these places. So it's pretty incredible. It sounds very logical to go that direction, assuming that you got some cash and you're physically responsible and you know how to manage it. Yep. 
I imagine, though, that the very first time you did modular construction, it was a little nerve-wracking because it was just different. 100%. So how did you get over the thought process of, ah, it's different and it's kind of new, but you know what? I'm still going to try it. So one thing that those in my circle know about me in my life is that uh, I'm a big believer in personal development. About that same time I got Rich Dad Poor Dad introduced to me, I was introduced to a gentleman named Jim Rohn, who's since passed. So Jim was my gateway into the personal development space. And so he introduced you to Zig and Brian Tracy and Dale Carnegie and Napoleon Hill and all these amazing, amazing personal development speakers from what I consider the original generation, really. And that was really what taught me that you need to win the inner game before you can win the outer game. And part of that, not only going through that whole personal development process, is really understanding that you win the inner game before you win the outer game, but also the fact that when you are growing in life, it's painful. And the more you fail, the more successful you will be, right? So the most successful people always have the most failures. So what I've realized is that Every time I get comfortable, I know I'm getting stagnant and I'm leaving a growth mode and that's bad area to be in. And so humans by nature are growth oriented. And so really it's a mental game first to understand that, look, I don't know what I'm doing, but I will tell you what, I know this for a fact. The school of hard knocks in life of actually experiencing and doing new things will teach you better than any book, any other way that you can consume information by actually doing it and learning and getting better because of it. How do you set yourself up financially? Because with that mentality, someone might hear that and think, okay, anytime I'm getting comfortable, that means I'm getting stagnant. So I need to go out there and do something that might be painful. They might interpret that to mean that they're putting all the chips on the table and continuing to bet on black. So how do you, from a personal finances standpoint, make sure that you've got some things separated from these risky or new things, I should say, that you're doing that have increased risk? That is a great question. So what I would advise, and this is what I personally did after a lot of introspection was, I realized that by nature, I'm a very conservative individual. I mean, obviously I have an element of risk taking, but really what appears to be outside risk is learning how to manage the downside risk and mitigate that as much as possible so that it really only leaves you with the upside. That being said, again, I spent nights and weekends for 13 years buying houses before I finally made a pivot and walked away from a day job that was a $350,000 a year guaranteed job that I could do in 30 hours a week. It was bonkers. But what I'm saying though, is that in that time frame, I used it as a tool. So I built my dream house. I paid off my dream house. I got rid of all personal debt. I have a philosophy that you always own assets and you lease liabilities. So I think a lot of people don't get their financial house in order so that they can be in a position of strength to then go out and, and bring your game to the next level. And really, it is the pre-work or the preparation that ends up determining the separation. Mm -hmm. And just on the you own assets and lease liabilities, Yep. I imagine you consider your house a liability, right? <laughs> I do consider my house a liability. 
I did pay it off after we built it. And the reason I did that was because, again, this goes down to planning for the worst. So if at the end of the day, the sky started falling and all my investments were upside down and I had given back to the bank or they called everything due, at the end of the day, I still own my house free and clear. So I actually technically own it minus the taxes I have to pay every year. And basically... I still have a, a position of security. So it's a cost and it's not just financial. You can't always measure things strictly on a financial numbers basis, especially personal life and living decisions too. Very true. Yep. There's investment decisions. There's quality of life or lifestyle decisions just that give us a peace of mind. 100%. What's the deal you've lost money on? Let me rephrase. What deal have you lost the most money on? <laughs> That's another interesting story. Any entrepreneur, I have plenty of battle wounds. I'll tell you the greatest lessons that I learned. Early on, I was helping to try and develop an indoor go-karting facility. When I first moved up to Michigan, I was like 22, 23, and I ended up making a unsecured loan to who I thought was my partner at the time doing this of $50,000. Now, as a 22-year-old, I had a line of credit with that kind of money on it, but I didn't have any savings, right? So I'm like, okay, this makes say, sense. Yeah. You had 30000 yep. in student loans, exactly. 50000 in yep. credit card debt. Yep. Like, so eight, nine, 10% interest. I'm like, this sounds good. Well, the reality is, is you end up disappearing with the money. And then that put me in an even worse situation, having to pay that back off over the next couple of years and have the fortitude to stick with it, to pay it off, to learn from my lesson. And that taught me a really good thing about lending money and being very, very careful because no one's going to care about your own personal money and financial well-being as much as you will because they don't have as much invested, right? And so that was a big one for me. I've also had houses like right now I'm in the middle of a pretty high-end single family home flip. We paid, basically it's still to be determined, but it could turn out to not be that great. Whereas we bought a house in a very Tony suburb of Detroit, spent about 3,800 square foot house, ended up spending about 650 on the acquisition have another 400 in the budget for renovations. So there's over a million bucks and we're pegging it to the market to one, two, one, three. But the problem is, is because I abdicated responsibility, I lost control. So what happened was that property sat vacant for 14 months at an interest cost of just sitting there of $77,000. Why, so, <laughs> why did it sit vacant? Basically because I had a partner on this deal that I went in with uh -huh. and long story short, he was kind of running a deal and I was the finance guy behind it and I didn't hold him accountable to his construction timelines and stuff like that. And so here's another great lesson for your listeners is that always, always, always be cautious and wary of short-term debt. I had a mentor. Jack Miller and John Schaub and those guys in the housing world that always said that you should never have short-term debt because it's basically a ticking time bomb and two years, three years, five years, even 10 years goes by really, really fast. So I made a pact to myself that there was no more short-term lending under five years. Okay. And the unsecured loan of 50000 when you're in your early 20s, you wrote a check to that person, and then what happened exactly? So I drew up a promissory note, and we had terms. He signed it, gave his personal guarantee, and we were trying to raise about $2 million bucks that we needed to get this. Basically, we bought an old Sam's Club, uh -huh. and we were going to 
outfit it with indoor go-karting and a restaurant and a whole deal. So anyways, idea. yeah, yeah, it was, it was a huge idea. And then when you're in your early twenties and you don't know any better, it sounded awesome. Right. Yeah. So I was all in and still so, sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it, not profitable, yeah, but awesome. No, though. Not exactly. Not <laughs> profitable at all, but really, really awesome. So anyways, especially when you live in Detroit with the motor city and everybody loves cars and stuff up here. But that being said, we were doing this 2006, 2007, and really, we just hit the downturn where we basically tapped out on being able to raise the additional capital that we needed to be able to get our renovation and everything up and running online. So then this is what happens is people get behind. Then they're like, oh, I have an electricity bill and taxes are outstanding and all this stuff. And it was one of those situations where he had expected more money to come in to pay me out and it never came. So the other prospective investor pulled out and said, no go. And so long story short, he spent that money and didn't have it to pay back. And I never saw a dime of it. Mm, and you asked, hey, buddy, come on. What was the response? Great question. I mean, <laughs> we're really starting to get personal here, but that's okay. So if you really want to know the story about that. So I actually pursued him legally. I went after it, had an attorney, and it was actually a great original introduction to attorneys because you deal with them so much in this industry and had him kind of go after him. He wasn't originally from the state, so he relocated back to his old state and just kept dodging it and dodging basically the attorneys for a long time. And then unfortunately, it's about seven or eight years after that, he passed. He had a heart attack. And so he was basically uncollectible. My attorney calls me one day and says, well, I don't think we're going to be able to pursue this anymore. And so then it was actually closure. And that's another big thing is that you don't want to leave things lingering out there and open. You really want closure on stuff. And so that was very comforting to at least know that, all right, this chapter in my life, it was the school hard knocks lesson learned, but now I'm moving forward. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure thing. All right. First quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation podcast where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation Podcast at thereifoundation.libson.com. Best ever book you've recently read? Oh, best ever book I've recently read. So I am big into Dan Sullivan right now and she's a coach, right? And so I go up to Toronto and do workshops with him and he just wrote a book called Who Not How basically tells that you have these ambitions to build a big business. It's not the how you do it, it's the who. And that means you need to be spending your time finding the right who's to be able to build your team to get more done. Because as you know, investing in multifamily real estate is a team sport. What's the best ever deal you've done? 
Best ever deal I've ever done. Actually, I'll tell you two stories. One was a value add class B asset in the metro Detroit suburbs. Ended up buying it for about one four, put about two fifty in renovation. So I was in for one six, one seven. Got a post stabilized valuation of about two point six. Uh, yeah, almost a million dollars worth of equity there. And that was a relatively small deal, twenty eight units, but it was a nice little hit there for a basically a, a two and a half to three year turn, running the whole process through and stay stabilizing it. Another deal, again, as I mentioned earlier in, in the podcast, Detroit does have a lot of very inexpensively priced real estate. A couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to buy a large multifamily complex with some partners. We paid about eight a door and really it was just an occupancy issue. It was the right problems that poor management and we ended up stabilizing it and I exited at 22 a door. So almost tripled my money on that one. Best ever way you like to give back to the community. The best ever way that I love to give back, and this is truly why I do what I do, is I like to create success and continual growth so that I can provide more for my community, for the charities I support, for the community, so I can have a bigger influence and really make a bigger impact in this world. Same thing with owning apartments. It really is an amazing thing when you can provide someone a safe, secure community and place to live that can sometimes change their life. So it really is rewarding in that aspect. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? Easiest way to get a hold of me is kuhnrealestate.com. That's K-U-H-N realestate.com. That's our main investor page. And there is a form they can submit. And I believe they're going to post in the show notes as well, the office contact info and everything. Andrew, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for sharing your stories. Thanks for sharing your path, some specific case studies, talking about some lessons learned on the historical Windows 309.25, talking about modular construction, talking about loaning money to people, and all sorts of other relevant, helpful pieces of information. So really appreciate it, and great for you on the show. So hope you have a best ever day. And we'll talk to you again soon. Yes, you too. Thank you. Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation podcast where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation podcast at com. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com.